Welcome to My Park Story, presented by the National Park Service. People form connections with their favorite national parks and programs, and this park cast is a place to come together and share those stories. I'm your host, Dave Barak. Today's guest is NPS grants recipient, Dr. Leona Tate. In 1960, when Leona Tate was only six years old, she became a civil rights leader in her community as she and two other black girls desegregated New Orleans McDonough Public School. Decades later, Dr. Tate reopened the closed McDonough School Building using National Park Service, Save America's Treasures, and African-American Civil Rights Grants, totaling $1.5 million in funding. The building, now known as the TEP Center, operates as a community and education center, as well as affordable housing for seniors. This week marks the desegregation anniversary, which took place 63 years ago. Here is Dr. Tate's story. It is my great honor today to be speaking with Dr. Leona Tate of the Leona Tate Foundation. Her story is an inspiration and the work that she has done uh, with her foundation and with help from the Park Service is truly uh, community, uh, community building and we're really excited to have her. Let's start from the beginning. You attended the McDonough School when you were a girl, is that correct? Yes, yes, six years old. Yes. Six years old. What was this mm-hmm. event that mm-hmm. you needed to prepare yourself for as a six-year-old mm-hmm. girl? New Orleans had selected two elementary schools that had formerly been an all-white school to be desegregated. And it was three at McDonough 19 where I attended myself, um, Gail Etienne and Tessa Prevost, and it was Ruby Bridges at Will Prince. Um, and I was one of the little girls that was, was selected for that process. Um, we had to be prepared a special way. We had to be rigorously psychologically tested. Um, it was strange for a five-year-old girl. You know, you didn't. We didn't understand what was happening, but we knew something different was about to happen. And uh, but I knew I was going to a new school. Mm-hmm. Very excited about going to a new school because I was not happy with my old school. We were selected from an application that was placed in the newspaper um, for children in the Ninth Ward area of New Orleans. Um, Mm -hmm. There were like 140 families that turned these applications in. The criteria was very high. Um, There was five families that were selected. We had to be psychologically tested and, and and just just doing you know different things to make sure we could endure what we were about to face. Um, out of the 140, I said five were selected, but only four participated because the criteria asked you to be a whole family. You could not be without a dad in the household, and one little girl was without a dad, so she couldn't participate. Do you know what your parents' reasons were to want their girl to go to a newly desegregated school? The only thing I could remember ever saying was that she paid her taxes and she felt like I could go to to get my education at a better school. Um, but she had so much support, you know. So I, I think, you know, even though she 
was strong-willed, you know, I know she needed that backup to, to go through this and, you know, both parents, but, um, and I, and I really think that's, that's really what got us through. My mother just, just wasn't, she wasn't giving up. She wasn't giving up. She was stood our ground. She was standing on ground. You wanted to go, you said, because you didn't like your old school, but did you know what the challenges were going to be? I had no idea. No idea. When I woke up that morning, I was, my house was, had family and friends that you would have thought it was a holiday. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> just somebody doing something to prepare. And um, everybody seemed to be in a good spirit, you know, things going along smoothly. And then all of a sudden a car pulled up in the front of the door. It was a black car. And one of the marshals got out and he came to the door and my house got real quiet. And I can remember that silence today. I can remember that. So I knew then in the back of my mind, well, what's going on? I knew something was about to happen. So before we approached the door, my mother had already told me when I got to the car and sat down to the back of the seat, don't face to the window. And I tell children today, obedience had to play a big part of what we had to do because we really had to listen. And um, I was excited because I was getting a ride to school. I had been walking (laughs) 11 blocks to go to the old school and this school was in my neighborhood, you know, so. I was very happy to be going to a new school. Going to the new school, which was in your neighborhood, did mm-hmm. you know any of the other children? Did you know your classmates as neighbors or uh, from other places around town? I don't remember recognizing anybody when I got there. Um, but, you know, when we approached the school, we came in from the Redder building and, you know, it was masses of people out front. I really... I didn't even pick up on the anger of the crowd. I just thought, to me, the only thing I could relate it to was that a parade was coming. Because wow. I, knew parade, I knew a parade passed on that street. Um, we entered the building and it took us about half the day to get placed in the classroom. They asked us to seat, take a seat on the bench that was outside the principal's office. And we sat there quite a while before they wanted to put us in the classroom. But I remember getting going in the class, it was a full body of students, but I don't remember recognizing anybody, but I know our neighborhood was a mixed neighborhood at that time. And, but I, you know, I don't remember children my age, you know what I'm saying? And um, I tried to speak to a little girl that totally ignored me. It was like I was invisible. But before you know it, their parents were pulling all the white students out. They were were leaving. And by three o'clock, they were all gone. We were the only three in that building for their entire year and a half. Did that register with you as a child? Not right away. It didn't, you know, and like I thought, I thought a parade was coming and I really thought that's why they were leaving to go outside and watch the parade. And I kind of think, remember asking my mom, well, why everybody gets to watch the parade? And oh, I thought it was Mardi Gras because that's what they looked like. And um, she said that wasn't the case, but um, it, it didn't, it didn't get affected. Uh, we didn't question it at all. You know, we, no, we wound up being the only three students, but we were comfortable at McDonald 19. We were very comfortable, you know, and um, and it was just a normal day. We, we just couldn't play outside. We couldn't um, eat from the school. We had to bring out food and beverages. Water fountains were turned off. We couldn't see outside. No one could see inside. Um, didn't realize how protected we were and how confined we were for protection. 
it sounds like in an effort to desegregate McDonough or to that they in effect resegregated it with only black students in one class and white students in the other classes. There was no white students in the other class. They all left. They all left the school completely. They all left the school completely. There were two brothers that lasted only till the end of the week, but we never saw them. They were in another part of the building, but all of the students were gone. When I say this was an empty building with just the three of us, it was an empty building with just the three of us. The teachers were in their classroom because they had gotten a telegram that morning saying that if they didn't report to work, they didn't have a job. Uh huh. But, they, but no other teacher had students but my teacher. And how long did that last? That lasted for a day, a month? A year and a half. We ended up first grade that way and we started second grade the same way. The same way. Oh. What? What changed in the middle of second grade? Well, Christmas came and when we came back, 25 other students had joined us, but they were all black except two sisters. And um, well, after second grade, McDonough 19 had become a school for black students. And um, we were transferred because they wanted to keep the three of us in the white environment um, to another all white school. So. When we got transferred, we didn't have the marshals or the police protection anymore. Uh-huh. So in this transfer was at TJ Sims school and um, that's where we faced integration. We I'm endured sure. a lot. We endured a lot. But we had to endure it for it to work. When did it dawn on you that you were part of the civil rights movement? I don't think I understood that it was a movement, a civil rights movement for a while, but I know in third grade, we did realize that um, it was because of the color of our skin that we weren't wanted. Um, I think around the time, um, maybe fourth or fifth grade, I think around when, um, it, might, it might've been around when President Kennedy was assassinated or I think mostly around when Martin Luther King was assassinated you know, we were watching it on TV and, and I can remember my family talking and things like that. And, and, and it's, you know, just things that they were talking made me know that that I was a part of, of that, of that type of movement. And um, but it, it took a while. It took a while because, it was, you know, I kind of like. Wanted to know and didn't want to know because it was so overwhelming until I just didn't want to really talk about it, you know, so. You were integrated into McDonough in 1960, is that correct? Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it would have been roughly eight years later, Dr. King was assassinated mm -hmm. in 1968. Right. I look back on these parts of recent history for Black civil rights, for gay rights, women's rights, and I think I don't know if I, Dave, would have the fortitude to be brave and stand up. And here I am sitting, speaking with you, and this is within your lifetime. It's within my parents' lifetime that right. this was all occurring. So 
your story is inspirational and I am so pleased to see the work that you do now mm-hmm. as a culmination of your life's experiences. And I want to make sure that we talk about what became of the McDonough School, because you were so instrumental in creating what it is today. What happened after you left McDonough? And mm-hmm. then what became of it? McDonough stayed a school, but it was, um, you know, it was focused on black students at that time. Um, it went through a few changes. They had a name change in, uh, in the 80s, late 80s, I think. Um, and they renamed it Louis Armstrong. Um, then um, Hurricane Katrina came. And, um, but it had, it, it, it wasn't the, the hurricane that shut it down. It closed down. It was a failing school after a while. It got water damage on the bottom floor and a lot of wind damage on the second and the third floor. But this building has always been sentimental to me, Gail and Chessie. So, you know, when we were allowed to come back in this area to see our losses, my dad still lived in the community. It was a must that I come and see what the building looked like, which we couldn't come in yet, but we could pass. And it looked fine. You know, it, it didn't look like anything. And then just in the midst of the crowd talking, and find out that they were only gonna reopen one school back here in that area. I said, well, why they can't really do something with this building and 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 have a school so if people try to come home, they'll have enough space to bring kids. Um, well, everybody I talked to wasn't for that idea. You know, they had already decided to close it. Um, they didn't know if they were going to tear it down, they were going to refurbish it to something else or, or sell it, you know. So, um, so we did form the foundation and uh, finally, finally got an answer that this would never be a school again because schools are now required to be on three acres of land and it's only on 1.8 acres of land. Okay. But it's three stories high. So I, I just couldn't understand that. So, but nobody remembered what had happened at the building, you know? So um, I went to the school board. I had to do a presentation and, and tell the story of what had happened here. And, you know, that kind of like made people start thinking and remembering. There was one member on the board that kind of remembered those days because he was older than the rest of the board members. And um, they had already put up a sale sign and an auction sign on it. And um, so they, I don't know, it must have been prayers that day because they um, decided to reassess this, not just this building, it was a few other buildings in the city. And... um, and see what was, you know, what, what could be done. Mm-hmm. But they still was anticipating maybe tearing it down. So we went to the state and I had to do a presentation at the state to have it put on a national historic registry. Right. And, and it happened and it happened. And I think that's what saved it from being tear, torn down. But that gave us time to, to try to think of something because I knew it needed to be something educational. It needed to when, be. When did that designation come? Um, oh my God, what year was that? 2014, 2015, somewhere okay, up in recently, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, somewhere in that area. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and at what point did you have the spark of an idea of what you and your foundation would do with this historic building? 
Well, since our story had been lost, I thought, why not have something here that they can know what happened here? You know, I didn't know at that time, I didn't know what I was thinking. I, I, I kept saying, well, a museum, you know, we don't, New Orleans didn't have a new uh, civil rights museum at that time. And, um, and that's, that's just what I kept thinking about, you know, and um, I kept talking to people and I finally got introduced to a developer that finally said that my vision could be done. Wow. And, and that's what happened. So that's when uh, we took a chance in applying for the National Park Service grant. We didn't think we were going to get it that first try. And we got and it. And you did. We and we got it. <laughs> yes, we did. Yes. That was your first African-American civil rights grant from the National Park Service. Exactly. Sure was. Okay. Sure was. And and that one was for, I think, $500,000. Yes. Yes. Followed by another one for $500,000. And, <laughs> and then another one. The <laughs> third one uh, is Saving America's Treasures. Yes. yes. And that was for the final $500,000. And with these grants, what what have you created? What did you create with your passion and energy and your foundation? And then now you have this operating budget. Well, the old McDonough 19 school building is now, um, TEP is short for Tate, Etienne and Prevost because I always promised Gail and Tessa that if I ever got my hands on this building, it would be named after the three of us. And that's what I did. Um, so the bottom floor, which would used to be in um, um, an auditorium space and classrooms, is now classrooms plus the interpretive center that tells the history and 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 of what happened during that during the 1960s and tell other histories too that um, that we can host here. And that's that's my that's my vision for the TEP Center is to not just tell about our story, tell about all local stories here in New Orleans. And um, and we also have two floors of affordable apartments for seniors, 55 and older. It's 25 apartments. Yes. Wow. On the second and third floor. Yes. Oh, that's that's amazing. And I I think I think about I used to live in Louisiana, by the way. I lived in Lafayette. Okay. Um, and so I, I mean, I think about what I've seen in other cities where a building, a school, a church, a brewery, I mean, a store, whatever, you mm -hmm. know, is no longer used. And it's just, oh, we're just going to make luxury condos. And you took McDonough 19, you created the TEP Center. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting to me that you've made housing a part of that project because your foundation is not solely based on uh, teaching civil rights and anti-racism, but focus on women's rights, LGBTQ rights, housing. There are so many things that your foundation does beyond just action on civil rights. And this is such a concrete way to express your dedication to addressing the housing crisis. It's out of this world and it's. Right, right. And my first focus was to try to get elders that 
had been relocated for Katrina and okay. wanted to come home. But nobody kept track of people like that. So, you know, we're almost failed. <laughs> we're just about, we got two left, two apartments left. I'm so grateful to you, Dr. Tate, for your time and for sharing this story with, mm-hmm. with me and with our listeners. And it's so important as the National Park Service that we're not just these beautiful national parks, but we strive to help uh, projects within communities, foundations that are aiding their communities. Thank you for sharing with us all of these stories, Dr. Tate. Thank you. You are incredible. Thank you. So nice to meet you. (laughs) Thank you.